Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Thanks for that. Well, keeping me company until seven o'clock tonight. My panel, we've got journalist and author Harriet Sargent, rapper and podcaster Zuby, and political commentator Emma Burnell. You know, when I grow up, I want to be so successful that I get known as a single name. <laughs> Zuby. I say just Zuby. I want to be known just as I'm Michelle. I'm so jealous. Or Jubes. Yeah, I know. We need to chat about how you've made that possible. A one-name intro. I like it, so I do. Uh, right. Also, you know the drill on Jubes & Co. It's not just about us here and our thoughts. It's about you at home as well. What is on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Uh, you know already we're on YouTube. Uh, uh, we're everywhere, actually. TikTok, if you're young enough to be on that. I'm not, but if you are, we're on that. We're on the radio. We're everywhere. So wherever you are tonight, good evening to you. And you are very, very welcome. Now, our top story, you know, it's no surprise this, is it? Let's face it, because we've all known it's been coming. Uh, but we're all talking about inflation tonight. Uh, prices are rising at their fastest rate in 40 years. Uh, and the cost of living crisis, of course, is biting and I've got to say it's going to bite a whole lot harder. Labour want an emergency budget and the Citizens Advice Bureau says the warning lights could not be flashing brighter for the government to do something. Got to point out, though, that the uh, esti estimates of what inflation was going to be was 9.1%. Uh, it's 9%. So we are actually slightly, and okay, you're all going to shout at me saying the 0.1% is irrelevant, but I'm just trying to put a positive spin on it because... I worry right now, you know, that a lot of people uh, are really going to be worried and struggling and stressed. And I don't like to kind of make things worse or make people more anxious. Um, notwithstanding that, I'll start with you, Emma. You know, there's lots of kind of calls for the government to do more emergency budgets. You know, the big buzzword of the day at the moment, or buzzwords plural, is windfall tax. Are the government doing enough? No, uh, in a word. Um the government have a few very basic responsibilities. They are to ensure that the population is kept in the best possible way. Now, that doesn't mean mansions and stuffing our mouths full of gold, but it means ensuring that we can all wake up in the morning knowing that we can feed our children and ourselves and that there is work that we can go to in order to make that happen. Mm -hmm. um, now, that latter part has been quite successful. We are now have a scenario for the first time ever where there are fewer job vacancies, uh, sorry, fewer uh, people unemployed than there are job vacancies. Mm -hmm. So why is it that there are more people using food banks than ever before? Well, that's because the economy has been mismanaged drastically and we are not in a situation whereby we have a, a, an economy that works for working people. And that's what we need. We need to have I'm not saying that we need to have some sort of communist scenario whereby there are the only jobs are run by the state. There is a space in between where we are now and where we could be, where there is enough government intervention to ensure that what they laughingly call a national living wage is actually something that ordinary people can live on. 
Harriet, you was itching then. Um, when she was talking, I could hear that intake of breath, which meant you were poised. What is it? Well, the reason we are having the cost of living crisis is there's only one reason. That is because Putin invaded Russia. I mean, three quarters of the price increase has been because of oil and gas prices shooting up. And that's because we handed uh, Putin control over our energy supplies and we are now paying the price. Uh, the other you know, huge thing is uh, the shoot up in, in food. I mean, chicken and lamb have gone up 10%. Um, everything is going up because of something very basic, which is fertilizer. Mm. And the majority of fertilizer comes from Russia and Ukraine. And last year, fertilizer cost £120 a tonne. It's now costing £1,000 a tonne. That is why we have a cost of living crisis and not because of anything in particular that the government has done. What the government does about it is another question. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's not quite just as simple as the Russian energy supply. I mean, of course, that is a huge, uh, one of the most dominant contributing factors. But we've also had things like a global lockdown where all of these yeah. countries couldn't help themselves, locking themselves down for God knows how long. And then everybody then came out, so we have this lockdown at a similar time. You then pushed huge demand uh, onto a supply kind of side of things, which raised prices. I think you've got a little bit of organizations blatantly profiteering. So I think there's a mixture, a melting pot of things that have come together to create this situation. And there'll be others as well. Your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, the primary cause of inflation is always an increase in the money supply. And that is controlled by the central bank, which is controlled by the government. What do you mean? Quantitative easing? Are you saying that the government's printing too much money? Printing too much money. And it's exacerbated by the lockdowns. If you shut down large swathes of the economy for a long, indefinite period of time, you stop people working. In fact, you pay people money to stay home and do nothing via furlough money. That leads to a devaluation of the mm -hmm. currency. That's what caused it. It's the government intervention that causes inflation to begin with. And it can be exacerbated by other factors but it's not that store owners and shopkeepers are randomly putting their prices up. What's happening is the value of your pound is decreasing. And I, I do think, though, that some store owners are just taking the mic a little bit. I, pay, I, I still can't get over this. I paid, I wonder about this often, £4.50 for a sausage roll the other day. And OK, it's not about me and my sausage roll, but I looked at this kind of thing and I thought, come on now, I get it, price has gone up a little bit. But the flaw in my plan was I'd already asked them to heat it up. So I had to pay. <laughs> I thought, well, I can't get a heated, what am I going to do with this heated sausage roll? I can't give it back. But I do think, actually, that some organisations are taking the mickey a little bit. And a well, lot of it, they lost a lot of money during the lockdown, so some of them were trying to recoup. They did. It's important to remember that this 9% figure, it's not a 9% figure for many products that we buy. If you are someone who works in farming or in manufacturing or in timber, timber the price of some things have gone up 40, 50, 100%. Mm. The, price of, the, the price of lumber, index. the price of metal, the price of um, foods and so on. So what we are seeing with that 9%, if anything, is an understatement. So we're talking um, about some of the causes because I don't think it is as simple as just blaming the government for everything. I, and I also think you do. <laughs> but, then, but then what would you say? Do, yes. But what would you say to Harriet's point then? Because Harriet's just made a very good point. Mm -hmm. You know, she's pointing out quite rightly that we've got a war on in Europe. You've got you've got um, mm -hmm. reliance upon Russian gas. You've got sanctions here, there, and everywhere. Like that has an impact on inflation as well. It, it, it does. It can exacerbate it. But inflation would happen regardless, and it's been happening regardless. 
Inflation oh. always happens. Also, I mean, no, if the, the government are in the charge bank. of nothing else, they're in charge of how we manage our economy. What we made were several political decisions to ensure that we were not resilient when it came to shocks. That were, Whether that shock was going to be, we didn't know it was going to be a global pandemic. We didn't know it was going to be Putin invading Russia, although we should have seen a lot more of that kind of thing coming down the track and preparing our economy so that we were resilient enough for it. Well, that sorry. we had a certain amount of self-reliance in terms of energy, uh, that we weren't, for example, going, oh, we don't really like wind farms. They're not pretty. Let's not build wind farms. Let's rely on Russian gas instead. But we don't rely, we as a country don't rely on Russian gas. We get a tiny percent of our energy from Russia. So that's not the situation for this country. Uh, by the way, Emma, I've just pointed out that one of the contributing factors to this is all of these, what I would now call ridiculous lockdown policies. And the Labour Party actually they were one of the ones that wanted us, they would probably, in, in my view, would still have us locked down today now. And you can't deny that actually... That's a strange view, Michelle, that isn't actually reflected by any it's policy strange, held by the Labour Party. He all kept on saying, every time there was a break, he'd say, no, we must stay locked up. I mean, I, I totally think we agree, need Michelle. to balance the fact That's that we would be in far greater economic straits if we'd lost more working people to COVID. Well, excuse me. A working age, working the death people, of working age people was a problem economically too. Working as well age as people a big were not dying in great problem. numbers from COVID. So, I mean, this was I mean, we've know, all not lost a problem. people that we know, and not all of them were elderly and not all of them were vulnerable and frail. Yeah, but my point is that the Labour Party were very, very keen on suppressing the economy for much longer. Mm. And you cannot deny but that the I, I mean, of the economy there was a, has a, contributed to this. Of course it has. But this is what I'm saying. If we'd had a more resilient economy, economy that wasn't based on these last minute chains, on having everything run at absolute bare minimum, then it would have been easier to, to bounce back from lockdowns. No, no, but wait a moment. Yeah. We've had two. We've had a COVID, which is a once in a generation or even in a century event, followed with a, only a few days brief pause, followed by a war in Europe, which again is a once in a century event. I mean, you One cannot, run, you cannot run, you cannot run an economy thinking you're going to have two once in centuries events back to back. I mean, that's, that's just And Brexit. Well, we're well, going, we've also had Brexit, which was a choice. We are choosing not to do anything about climate change, which is going to be yet another once in a century what event. Are you talking about we're not doing no, no, about climate, climate change, change we are and also we all know about it we didn't know yeah, about we also pandemic. knew that russia was like was, was it Let having expansion I, I think it's important to say <laughs> that, that covid did not cause this the response to covid the governmental response to covid is what is causing this economic fallout this is the cost of lockdowns. Well, this sorry. was predictable. A lot of people were warning about this. So you're agreeing with me? Overviewed it. Absolutely. Well, she's saying that's the nonsensical view. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying the nonsensical view is the idea that Labour would still have us locked down, which is frankly nonsense. Oh, come off it. How do you know? As well, because we're talking I listen about, to what they say, as Michelle. As we're talking about <laughs> taking brave, bold steps into reopening the economy, mm. people were desperate to try yeah. and attack Boris Johnson, no. saying that we, he was putting us at risk. Mm. It was this, I mean, it was whether that, or it was not. We should have locked down one week longer or one week shorter. It's not the same down. as saying that in May 2022, Labour still want us to be locked down. Let, let, That's what I'm saying. Let, let, let's, let's move away from the Labour thing because I think this, this is conjecture and it can't be And also, can, I, can I just let's bring see. out this, your point about, but the, you know, that it's not caused by COVID. I mean, at the moment, there's 500 boats 
trying to unload in Shanghai yes. and load up in Shanghai. Mm -hmm. So you've got all these parts that we all it's, desperately it's, need in China that we I, are not being able to get because of the unbelievable lockdowns there. Zuby. The lockdowns, not COVID. It's the, yeah, the government it's response. The, it's yeah. the government well, I, response. I agree that, right? with that. Exactly. I agree. I mean, that's, that's the Chinese that's government Chinese that craziness. is locked down. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. various governments around the world yeah. decided to lock down and mm. people panicking and full of fear decided it was a good idea. I said from day one, I thought the lockdowns personally were a terrible idea. I don't think they helped. I thought, and I, they have caused far more damage than any help they've done. They've even done studies showing that it didn't save lives. And the goal wasn't to. It was to give by time to get in PPE and to so-called flatten the curve. And everyone forgot about that. Um, but this is the cost of it. These are the consequences that um, now need to be, yeah. to be paid. You can't shut down the economy like that and keep putting trillions and trillions into the economy, paying people to stay at home and think that there's not going to be any downstream repercussion in the future. Well, we've been out and about uh, talking to you guys, asking you. We've been in Mansfield, so we have <laughs> asking you, what do you think about all of this uh, inflation situation in terms of as well what the government are doing or not doing? Uh, let's have a little listen to what you've had. The shopping bills are going up and up and up, and uh, um, my bank account's going down and down and down. It's... Uh, it's going to be a point where I'm just going to run out of money with, with the way things are going at present. Uh, I don't understand why so many things have gone up. I heard that we're, there's a, there's a, we've got so much gas, we don't know what to do with it, yet the gas prices are going sky high. Uh, the oil prices just collapsed, uh, yet even I, I picked up fuel last week and it was 160 a litre, it's now 162 a litre. I mean, it keeps going up the way it is. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to be able to afford to pay my mortgage. Gas and electricity is the bugbear, absolutely. Um, I should have gone up to two-thirds from what I'm pay, I used to pay. And the firm that I was with has gone bust, so you're on British gas. And I don't know where they got the... The number from <laughs> I think they plucked it out of the air. <laughs> yeah. And food as well. Little bits it keeps going up and up and up. And uh, you notice it a little bit. Uh we don't usually budget but I uh, I am making shopping lists nowadays and trying to stick to it. Uh, I've noticed the likes of uh, electricity, the cost of that's going up. So I'm having to put about £50 a month on my gas and electric, and that's only just taking me through monthly basis. Tenancy charges are going up from the local authorities. And it's just, it is all going up. I mean, but the shop, I work in a convenience store, and people say, oh, how come your sweets have gone up from £1 to £1.19? And it's like, it's the cliche, but it's the cost of living. Uh, not a lot, really. No, I'm all right financially, so it's not bothering me. But uh, what worries me is the stuff that you can't get in the shops. That's the main thing that we're going to run out of the food. But apart from that, I'm all right. You um, might have experienced cost of living crises in the past. You might have seen how we came out of that. What's the solution for this kind of a crisis? I don't know. I don't watch the news. Don't interest me really. Uh, you're asking. You're asking the wrong person.
Well, there you go. We're asking the wrong person, he says. And this is the thing, you know, sometimes uh, if things don't affect you, maybe we're in uh, danger of saying, well, you know, I'm all right, Jack. It's not bothering me. Uh, but I do worry sometimes uh, about, you know, I do worry that there's going to be some people that are really going to struggle. Uh, and I do find it very peculiar why Rishi, if I was Rishi Sunak, which luckily I'm not, I'd get rid of VAT, I'd pause, mm. press pause on this green agenda. You say we're all burying our heads in the uh, sand about climate change. I think on the contrary, you can't go anywhere, do anything or see anything without net zero shoved down your face. We've got green levies uh, everywhere, quite frankly, and I would say press pause on them. Well, we've also just year. failed on the four most significant uh, factors when it comes to fighting climate change internationally. Yeah. Fine. So there, so there you go. And if we've failed already, an extra year is not going to make a difference. You've just made my point for me. Press pause on these green levies, help people. We're failing on these things anyway. So what difference does uh, a little... We're all going to die to anyway, so let's die sooner. Well, I don't, think I don't think we're all going to die suddenly because of the climate change. I don't sit here going, oh, God, woe is me. I'm about to die know, because of the climate. But we really ought to be a bit more woe is me when it comes to what we're doing to the planet. Well, you know what? If everyone dies because they can't afford food or heating, then the planet is the least of their concerns. But what do you think when it comes to things like green levies? Uh, because I personally would be pressing pause on them. Uh, are you in my camp or are you with Emma? Thinks that there is no time to delay when it comes to things like the green levies. Let me know some of your thoughts. GBviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. You guys have been getting in touch in your droves, actually, about that last topic uh, when it comes to inflation, cost of living, the government and all that kind of stuff. Gary says, Michelle, the government has paid for everybody to sit on their backsides for two years. And unfortunately, it's payback time. Get on with it, people. That's Gary. He's not messing around. Uh, Stephen says, I would like the government to put the £20 uplift back on universal credit and stop deducting carers' allowance for full-time home carers. Uh, someone else says, we should stop all foreign aid for a few years and get our own house in order. Uh, Sir John on Twitter, are you really a Sir John? Tell me, let me know. Uh, he says, I want the government to do two things, scrap HS2, uh, scrap foreign aid. He also goes on and says, reform the NHS and scrap the green levy. I can't count. Jackie. Well, I've just realised, I think I've said two things. I think I've conflated two things there. So I'll take that back, Sir John. You didn't say two and then go on to say four. I think you can count. It's me that can't. Um, Jackie says, when it gets as bad as the 1970s, then I will worry. Peter says, in the 70s uh, and 80s, inflation was much higher. You had no food banks, no national living wage, but we got on with it and we are still here today to tell the tale. Yes, you are. Now, this week, uh, moving on this week, we had, of course, didn't we? Uh, the shocking, it was awful, wasn't it? The, the racist killings in New York, you might have seen that. Uh, and that has once again shifted the focus on how do we tackle racism? Now, we're all familiar with the BLM organizations, the mantras, the movements, the slogans, whatever you want to call it. And one of these organizations today is that the spotlight firmly shone on it. It, it basically seems that the US BLM Foundation has spent millions of dollars uh, that was supposed to be on kind of stopping racism. Instead, it seems to have spent it on things like mansions and family members. So, of course, we all have a shared objective here, which is fighting racism, tackling racism. But how do we go about it? Is the BLM way the right way? Now, Zuby, uh, as the only black member of the panel, I'm sitting here thinking, what is the correct racial etiquette these days? Do I go to you first? Do I not go to you first? We've got um, a BBC show, Question Time. Uh, I remember the, the presenter 
had a similar kind of topic and went to the black member of the panel for his response first. And he turned around and said, you're coming to me because I'm a black person and that in itself is racist. So I've got to be honest, I'm sitting here getting myself in a muddle <laughs> thinking to myself, goodness me, if I go to you, am I racist? If I don't go to you first, am I racist? I don't know. So can I just start with you? You can start with me, Michelle. Good. That's all good. I know right. you're not racist, so no, your thoughts, no concerns here. Your thoughts on all this? Well, I, I feel vindicated because two years ago I said that this organization was a disingenuous scam and it has proven itself to be a disingenuous scam. The Black Lives Matter organization, this foundation in the USA, is a grift. They have received millions upon millions of dollars, I believe over $100 million dollars. Um, over the, I think just in 2020, it was, it was close to a hundred million. So this organization has been capitalizing off of unfortunate deaths and tragedies and guilt tripping people to send them lots of money and donations, which I believe most people think is going to go to a good cause. And instead they are paying themselves six and seven figure salaries. They're flying around in private jets. They bought a $6 million mansion. Um, they've got over, I think, what was it? It's written here. They have, I think, they invested $32 million in stocks in 2020 with donation money. So this is an outright scam. So when we talk about Black Lives Matter, it's important to note that this is a semantically overloaded phrase intentionally. It refers to at least three different things. There is the statement, the basic phrase, Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Everybody agrees. Every decent human being around the world across the political spectrum agrees that Black Lives Matter because all human lives matter and should be treated with respect and dignity. Mm -hmm. Number two is the organization or organizations. I think in the USA, this one we're referring to is the primary Black Lives Matter organization. And a lot of people don't know that there is an organization with founders, with people who are receiving the money. It's a nonprofit and they've been raking it in. They've been raking, raking in the money over the past few years. And as we've seen here, they have been spending it on enriching themselves. And it's, it's essentially money laundering. I think what they've done here is most likely illegal. Yeah, so I have to say that they would say in their own defense that they've mm. not done anything wrong. <laughs> well, you mean anyone can look at these articles and uh, I'm not going to, I mean, these numbers here. Paid the baby father $970,000 for creative services, paid the brother the 840,000 for security fellow director was got 2.1 million dollars this is all just in this is all just in one year mm. but then right? so emma so like the challenge is because every decent individual uh, which hopefully is the majority of people want to see racism stopped and ended and you know when something comes along and i think this whole kind of black life matter it, it, it is like now a complex web of you've got different charities foundations mm -hmm. so for some people it's a hashtag for others it's a slogan you know movements whatever and it has all become this kind of ball of kind of if we take blm as well let me ask you this do you think even the the blm thing is tarnished is it, is it still a trustworthy brand, if you like, when it comes to the fight against racism? Zuby's shaking his head. It never was. <laughs> uh, I think it's really important that you separate the concept of Black Lives Matter as a campaigning phrase, a positive campaigning phrase. Uh, the simple conception that Black Lives Matter and that saying separately Black Lives Matter 
is important when, particularly in America, too much of the importation of some of this to the UK, where we have very different structural elements in racism and it's completely different. Um, and when we import an American attitude towards racial relations, it's actually very unhelpful mm -hmm. because we have very different um, struggles and, and, and different attitudes. Um, from what is an organisation that does not, on the surface and from these stories, appear to be well-managed or managed in such a way that is doing what it is set up or supposedly set up to do. I think it's really, really important that we don't lose sight of the important conception of what Black Lives Matter should be about mm -hmm. from the um, organisational failures. And there's this is something that happens, and I, I'm somebody who works a lot with the, the third sector, the voluntary sector, and campaigning organisations to think about how campaigning can be done well. And the best way of campaigning is to put yourself out of business. If you can get to a point where what your, what your charitable objective is, is achieved, then you should be putting yourself out of business. Yeah. Well, unless you're stirring well, but that's a whole different topic. Yeah. Well, sorry, carry on. Uh, unfortunately, an awful lot of time what happens is that the organisations become too big to put themselves out of business and they, 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 their objectives snowball and they go in completely different directions or they become untouchable, un, uh, ungovernable. Uh, the individuals and the behaviours of an organisation become inseparable from the campaign aims of an organisation. And actually, those two things should be very separate. And any good campaigning organisation should be as self-critical as possible rather than self-defensive as possible. Because it's only by continually saying, are we doing this as well as possible? Are we putting ourselves out of business? That you can actually achieve a campaign goals and aims rather than achieving, maintaining an organisation. I'm keen to come back on that, but Harriet, I'm conscious you've not come in. What's your thoughts? Well, I, I think this is something that's been happening more and more and it is very sad. I mean, we've seen this with identity politics, exactly the same thing. At the beginning, every right-minded person believes, you know, black lives matter and that trans men and women should have equal everything with everybody else. And yet both have been taken over in the same way and actually used to cause division and hatred and violence. And both, I think, have been run almost as extortion rackets. Yes. That we, uh, we have to pay lip service. Otherwise, you know, you're going to lose your reputation. You're going to lose your mm -hmm. career. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a really, it's very, very sad this, the way this has happened. And it's actually promoted, you know, great distress and not brought about the, the good things that we were led to expect it would. Yeah, because Zuby, one of the things that I find, um, well, I don't like it actually, is being told, right, you, unless you take your Instagram and put a black square on this time and this day and leave it there, then you are a racist. And as for you, unless you take the knee at all your football mm. matches, your Formula One, whatever it is, then you're a racist as well. And I really reject that, actually. Why are you scrunching your face up? You don't think that happens? I, I think there's a spectrum here, and we're talking about two very extreme ends of it. And I actually think most of it exists in the middle of that spectrum. On the taking of the knee, I think it should be an individual's choice to do it. But I think when people do it, 
some of the criticism they face um, is ex as extreme as some of the criticism that those who criticise them for doing it face. And I don't think either of those is helpful to well, the I, ultimate I think, aim. I think something I think that's... it's perfectly fair for a premiership footballer to say, I'm going to take mm. the knee because I feel solidarity and I feel like it's really mm. important that I, do, that I do this. And they shouldn't be penalised for that. Then other people can say, that's not my choice and I shouldn't be penalised for that either. Yeah. I, I think it's very clear even from this conversation and all the conversations every time BLM comes up, is that it is divisive. Mm. It's divisive. This is stoking racial tension, not just in the U. I mean, it's crazy it's been imported to the mm. UK. Um, but in the USA, it's exactly the same. You had cities on fire in 2020. There was so much tension. Multiple people got killed. Over 20 people got killed in the BLM protests and riots in 2020. So this started from one black man getting killed and then you've got another few dozen but getting Zuby, killed. But Zuby, some of these organizations, they'll say to you, but Zuby... Mm -hmm. You are oppressed and we're here to oppressed. help you. I'm but not oppressed. They're not there to help me and they're not helping me. They're not helping black people in general. They are helping themselves. The way you stop racism is by people not being racist. It's not by calling everyone racist. It's not by making false and unkind accusations against everyone. It's not about virtue signaling and putting up hashtags and black squares and kneeling down. It's about simply treating people as equals. That's all And do you buy into, in this day and age, because there is a suggestion that in the here and now, in this day and age, that many aspects of society, whether it's institutions or whatever, are fundamentally racist. Do you think that that is the case in today's society? I don't think it's the case and I don't think it's useful. These terms, systemic, structural, institutional, racism, they're, they're popular because they're these apparitions, they're these ghosts where you never need to define anything or be precise. You just say, oh, the system is racist, the institution's right. You can just throw it out there and people just nod and cheer, but you can't fix a problem like that. If you want to deal with individual instances of racism, you need to be able to identify them, highlight them, and then you can deal with that individual issue. If you just say, oh, the whole thing, the whole thing, the whole system, the whole country top to down is racist, then that doesn't help anyone apart from the activists. Yeah, because it's almost what constitutes or what people want to say constitutes racism. It's like the, the bar is getting lower or seems to be getting lower and lower. Like the very the example I just gave to you, a presenter going to the black person on the panel first, which I would have thought actually was a respect <laughs> thing because if anyone's likely to have a lived experience, as the phrase is, more so on this topic, it would be you rather than anyone else. The fact that I've even got to sit there for a moment, I think, oh God, mm. should I be going to you first or shouldn't I be going to that first? See, but, but see and this, this shows what this has all done because I imagine a few years ago, you, that wouldn't even have crossed your mind. Mm. I would have come to you out of a respect. Right? It, 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 thought, it wouldn't have crossed your mind, but they, they've created this whole context where people don't even know what they can do. They feel uncomfortable. They've been teaching people from children to adults that they've all got this inherent racism in them and that we shouldn't be colorblind and everyone should be seeing color and all of that. And it's regressive. It's not progressive at all. It's moving what, people backwards. What worries me, um, and I, I have family members of many different colors, um, I think it's so high. I think it's exactly what Michelle and Zuby were just saying. I think there are two things that concern me. One is this um, promotion that there is one black way of thinking about these things. And I think that in itself is a really problematic thing mm -hmm. to think because it, it, 
it just says, you know, the idea that the billions of people across the, across the world that are of a different race have one mindset is in itself, for me, racially simplistic mm. um, in, a, in a ridiculous way. Um, and I do, when I'm thinking about change and how change happens, I think the problem we have is now we are too worried to question and ask questions. We, we're worried to say, is this the right thing to do? And I don't know how else you learn how not to do bad things than by saying, is this the right thing to do? Now, I struggle um, and I know that I don't always get things right. Um, but I hope that I come from a place where when I've got something wrong, I can learn from that rather than just simply either retreating into my own shell and saying, well, I'm not interested in learning or being told you can never learn and you are just wrong. And we've got to find that common ground, that happy medium space mm. where we can learn together. I think it just comes from people being decent and charitable and empathetic. Right. I think we live in this time where people like to use all of these different topics as weapons. Yes. Right. People want to be able to jump in. And, and I can understand why some people revel in it, because it, it's quite easy to do. You see this in some of the modern branches of feminism. You're seeing this with people who are doing it with race. People did it with the whole covid situation. Right. Anyone who dissents is anti-science and an anti-vaxxer and hates people and wants to kill grandma and so on. So and you make money from it. I yeah, mean, I mean, identity politics, it. I mean, um, <laughs> Stonewall have made so much money. And it's, mm. when you follow the money, it's really quite interesting who's making money from it and how they're making money from yeah. it. I've got to say, Zoe, there's an awful lot of love, uh, a few people saying they think they do love you, actually. <laughs> there's a cue, ladies. There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of love for you coming through um, because I think that people, it's refreshing to hear an alternate perspective on this because for a very long time, you have been told, and I do stand by what I've just said, you have been essentially told, if you don't change your Instagram black, then you're a racist. If you don't take the knee, you're a racist. And it's all well and good you say, oh yeah, well you can choose to take the knee. Yeah, of course you can choose what you do. But if you choose not to do that for your own personal reasons, then you will be vilified yeah. by many in society. Uh, so lots of people, uh, lots of feedback on this last topic. I was just about to talk about weight loss and whether or not it's your responsibility to lose weight or uh, the government's. Is Boris Johnson really responsible for your weight line? I'm gonna, waistline? I'm going to come to that in just a second. But when I was in the break, I was just asking you, Zoo, because I was fascinated by that last conversation. Lots of response, I can tell you, coming through. Lots of people thankful, actually, for the conversation that we're just having. And I was saying to you, I get a sense that actually there is an expectation on a black person to feel oppressed. So I was wondering how the response that you get, because you, I'm listening to you and you're pushing back on lots of this narrative, and I wonder the kind of response that you get to some of the things that you say yeah. from, from the black community, <laughs> I mean. Well, I, you know, it happens from all sides. First of all, your observation is spot on. Um, and I'd say it's actually a bigger problem in the USA than it is here in the UK. One thing I'm very grateful about here in the UK is that society in general is less racialized. Um, and these sort of conversations about race and the conflict and some of the negative history and all of that is there's not so much of a f of a focus on it here in the UK. But absolutely, we, we you know we live in this day and age, and I, it's been the case for this has going been going on for decades, honestly. Where as a black person, uh, whether you're in the UK or in the US or many other places, you are supposed to 
embrace this victimhood mindset, right? You are supposed to internalize it. Some people will even put this into their children, which I think is doing a massive disservice to them. And I don't think it is, I don't think it's a good thing. I don't think it's positive. I don't think it's helpful as a society and as someone who just, as an individual who just loves humanity and grew up around all kinds of different people. I just look at people as individuals and everyone is so multifaceted. We all have our strengths and weaknesses, advantages, disadvantages. Each person is a unique individual, whether you are a black person, a white person, a brown person. It's such a, it's such a base and silly label for us to even be differentiating society by. That's always been the case, which is why racism itself is such a dumb concept. But it's also why it's really silly how we have this sort of new form of woke neo-racism, as I call it, which is forcing people back into thinking in this mindset of it being white people and everybody else. You know, instead of colored people, we'll now call them people of color and now everything is all good. And it's just like, look, that's not how I see the world. It's not how I see society. Um, and I don't think promoting a victim mindset and mentality for anybody is helpful to them. I don't, I think it does them a massive disservice. Well, there you go. Fascinating stuff. I've got to say, I could literally sit and talk to you about this topic all night long. <laughs> but unfortunately, for time reasons, that is not possible. Lots and lots. And I'm telling you, lots of uh, support for what you're saying coming in thick and fast on Twitter and on the email, Zuby. Right, let me move on uh, briefly to another topic, if I may. Uh, since last year, the government, there was a, a fund awarded essentially last year of £100 million to help uh, with weight loss programmes. Of that, £30 million has been spent by councils to fund uh, said initiatives. But get this, only 220 people so far have managed to keep their weight off. Now, by my uh, crass calculations, that's about £136,000 per person. £136,000 to lose 5% of your body. I'd do it for half that, actually. Uh, Emma, where do you start? Is it Boris Johnson's responsibility <laughs> to help you or anyone else lose weight? Well, we used the term lived experience earlier. Um, nobody can talk about this topic with more lived experience than I can. Um, your more eagle-eyed viewers will notice that I've not yet hit my weight loss target. But those who've seen me on the television over the years will know that I've lost half my body weight. Um, I used to be 25. You gave us a picture, didn't you? Have we got this picture? You said we could use a picture of you? I did. I don't think they asked for it, but I'm ha very happy to share it whenever you want because I'm very proud of what I've done. Yeah. Um, now... The government did gave me gave me a kickstart with that. Um, the NHS invested in me. Uh, I had um, gastric sleeve surgery, um, which meant that I lost seven stone very quickly uh, over a year. Um, seven stone. I lost seven stone over a year, and then I started because the stomach is a muscle, um, and because. Can I ask a really personal question? Of course, if it's too personal. I've got, Tell Michelle, me you know me. There's nothing <laughs> I don't share. <laughs> seven stone is pretty much me in a little bit. That is so. That is a huge weight loss. So, what, but I've lost much more than that. But how this is, and this, I don't want to be offensive. So I'm trying to pick no, my no, words please carefully. Please say whatever you need to say. How did you get as big as that in the first place? Um, the thing about 
being very overweight. I started gaining weight when I started being sexy, basically. Right. Um, I decided I opted out of the sexual rat race, essentially. Mm -hmm. So about 14, I started piling on the pounds um, and I piled on the pounds and I piled on the pounds and I got miserable because I was fat and I ate because I was miserable and I got fat because I ate. And it's a horrible, horrible, vicious cycle that people who think it's really helpful to shout at you on the bus, oh, you're really fat. It's like, my God, so I am. I'd never noticed. <laughs> That's why my back hurts constantly. Um, yeah, that, that horrible, vicious cycle, being getting to that state happens in your head. It happens to your body, but it happens in your head. And that's what I needed to break. And that's what the government's head start gave me. Now, I had to do... What do you mean the government's head start? Well, what? The, mm. the investment, the NHS investment in, in deciding to intervene in my health at that point. But you must have made your own decision. I, I, it was it. my decision, but the NHS offered me the surgery and I chose to take it. Right. I then chose to run with it. Um, because the stomach's a muscle, I started putting weight on back on a little bit and I was like, absolutely not, not happening. Mm. So I then went to, I don't know if I'm allowed to name the brand, but it was um, one, of, one of your slimming club type things. Um, and I've lost further six stone with them. So I've lost, overall, I've lost 12 and a half stone. That is incredible, actually. You. Um, you lost two and I've got two and a half to go. And I know, guys, I know you're all screaming, <laughs> you're still fat woman. I know. <laughs> well, I've got a lot of respect, actually, because I imagine I've never, I, don't, I think I've got a very fast metabolism. I think we're quite lucky, but to lose that amount of weight and to keep going, I think it's extraordinary. Yeah. So good for you. I'm sorry that I wasn't able to show uh, that picture, but Harriet, where do you stand on this? Well, I'm addicted to cake, so I'm, <laughs> I'm incredibly sympathetic with putting weight on. Um, I think that, that, that um, if you look at, it's quite interesting, if you look at photos from the 1950s, everybody's slim, and you kind of think, well, why is it that we have just put on weight and put on weight? Um, and it, I do think that it's incredibly difficult now to lose weight because we, you know, um, uh, a lot of these um, fast foods have deliberately put together a taste, you know, the, the, the sugar and the fat to, to get us addicted. I mean, they've done this with a great deal of thought. And so getting off it is horrendously hard, which I mean, you have obviously succeeded, but it is horrendously hard because it's, I, I, I read it's, you know, it's almost as difficult as coming off heroin. Well, the problem is, and I've said, I've said this in articles that I've written about it, you would not ask an alcoholic mm. to drink a quarter of vodka a day to stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. But I have to mm. eat every day. Mm. Mm. And if my addiction is overeating, managing that whilst also having to have that intake of food, which of course I have to have, I mean, you know, let's not be stupid about this. Yeah. That's, that is where it, that, that's the really hard part because there's no going cold turkey on this. So you, yeah. you saw your, or I don't know if you do still or past tense, present tense, I don't know. So you would see your food consumption as an illness? I mean, I don't know if illness is exactly the right word. Um, it's, Compulsion? It was a compulsion, absolutely. And it was also, let's not be dumb about this, when you are as unhappy as I was, um, you will choose something that will give you a quick boost. Mm -hmm. And something that gave me a quick boost was food. I think the truth is that everything, it all starts in the mind. Yeah, it absolutely, all, it 100%. It all starts in the mind. And I think conversations like this are actually really important because I think due to the sensitive, due to the sensitive nature of the issue, 
People like to dance around it. People like to skirt around it. I love the fact that, firstly, congrats on that weight loss. Yes, great. That is, that is phenomenal. I love to hear those stories. And the truth is, it always, it does come down ultimately to personal responsibility. There's all this talk about the, the government and the public. And of course, there's the advertising industry and the food industry. And all of that plays a role in the environment. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that you cannot eat nor exercise for anybody else. So an individual has to make that personal decision that they want to make a change. And that is always the, that's always going to be the starting point. If someone does not want to commit to that change, then... Then nothing, nothing and no one can help them. Fascinating help. stuff. Uh, right. I have just noticed the time. I could honestly continue this conversation for a very, very long time. Uh, guys on my panel, thank you very much for your honesty, your openness, your vulnerabilities as well. We much appreciate it. Uh, and thank you as well at home for your interaction tonight. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Kerr, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.